I hope you have your sermon notes. This will be brief. This will be brief, and I promise. Um, but I began a message uh, from uh, Hebrews chapter 9 uh, when I was, uh, you know, two weeks ago before Kathy and I left town. And uh, let me just uh, review that with you and then just uh, complete this. And uh, then we'll move on. For those of you that are guests, uh, we have been in a book study uh, of Hebrews. It's been a magnificent study of seeing the uh, superiority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ and, um, and, uh, and all that we possess in Him. And in, and in this section of the book, from about chapters, uh, chapter 7 all the way through chapter 10, he's basically contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And again, let me remind you the reason he does this. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. These folks came to know Christ out of a long history in the Old Covenant, with Old Testament worship, with the sacrificial system, all the ceremonies and rituals that went with that. So now that they've come to know Christ, you know, they have some questions. Well, do we have any obligation still with the old system? Uh, we've talked about the fact how they were suffering severe persecution, severe persecution. They were being thrown in jail. They were being tortured. They were being put to death. Uh, this was a reality for the Christian community in that day. And so because of the severity of the persecution, they were also tempted to retreat from their commitment to Christ and to go back to the old Judaism, which appeared to be much safer and much more secure. And, and so the writer felt this need to address this issue, the, the, the sheer foolishness of going back. Why would you ever sacrifice the greater for the lesser and, and all that you have in Jesus Christ? So in this section, he's contrasting uh, the difference between the two, to show the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the blessings that He offers. And in chapter 9, as you see in your notes, the focus is the fact that new covenant worship is superior than uh, the worship that was found in the old covenant. And in the last message, now, uh, we, we covered the limitations of Old, Testament, uh, old covenant worship. So let me just run through this. This will be just a quick review since this was already covered two weeks ago. But we basically see uh, four limitations that are mentioned in this chapter. And the first is, it was confined to an earthly tabernacle. Worship in the Old Covenant was confined to an earthly tabernacle, a tabernacle that was made with the hands of men, a tabernacle that had to be repaired, a tabernacle that would have to be torn down uh, to accommodate the movements of the people. Then it would have to be put back up. Uh, and so it was an earthly uh, tabernacle. Uh, we see in verse 1 now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and notice and the earthly tabernacle. The second limitation of old covenant worship was it was full of symbols but no reality. Full of symbols but no reality. If there's one thing I hope you've captured as we've gone through these chapters is that every aspect of Old Testament worship Everything about the Old Testament tabernacle and the tem tem uh, temple was meant to point people to what? To Jesus. They were just symbols. They were just shadows of the real thing that was to come. And so one of the writer's main points is, hey, once the real deal comes, 
you what? You, you let the symbols go. You let the shadows go. Now you embrace the real deal, the substance, which is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and that's emphasized in verses 2 through 5. You also see in verse 9, the outer tabernacle, notice, is a symbol. Circle that word symbol for the present time. And then in verse 24, toward the end of the chapter, a holy place made with hands, a mirror. Notice, circle that word copy of the true. So one of the limitations of Old Covenant worship was it was just full of symbols. There was no reality, and it was not meant to be that. It was meant to be a symbol. It was meant to be a copy. It was meant to point us, to get us ready for the Messiah so that when He came, we would leave the old and embrace Him, to embrace the new. And then you, we pointed out some of the symbols. I mean, we could have, we could have spent literally weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, Brother David, what was it? It was Emerson Pent who came here years ago, did a study on the tabernacle. And I remember we had him for about a week or so. And just every night, he just went through all the furniture, all the aspects of the tabernacle, showing how every aspect of the tabernacle, you saw Jesus. And here, here's just several examples. Uh, the lampstand, which was the only light provided in the uh, tabernacle as the uh, priest ministered, represented Jesus, the light of the world. The table of the sacred bread. Remember, those were the 12 loaves that represented the 12 tribes of Israel that were uh, replaced every Sabbath. Fresh bread would be put there, and the, brie- the priest would eat the old bread. And they were the only ones allowed to eat the old bread, and that represented Jesus, the bread of life. Uh, and then the altar of incense, of course, represented Jesus, our great and faithful high priest who continually intercedes for His people. And then the Ark of the Covenant, especially the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, represented Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation means to appease the wrath. And and we talked about the fact that sin brings the fury of God's wrath, brings the fury of God's judgment. But Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's justice against sin as He paid the penalty for our sin, canceled that sin debt out as we just sang er about earlier this morning, and uh, to offer us uh, redemption, to offer us salvation. The third limitation of uh, old uh, covenant worship is God's presence was totally inaccessible to the worshiper. Remember, we looked at this. There were three Uh, sections to the Old Testament tabernacle, as well as the temple. There was the outer court, and then the tabernacle proper, the tabernacle itself, there was what was called the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. It was behind that second veil where there was the immediate presence of God. Now, the the people uh, could only be in what? The outer court. Remember, we talked about this. In the holy place... Only priests could enter the holy place. Only priests. The common person could not. And to go into the holy of holies, who could go into the holy of holies? Just one man, the high priest, and how often? Just once a year on the day of atonement to make atonement very important. Not only for the people's sins, but what? For his own sins. When he would take the blood uh, behind. And, it, and, and uh, you know, we didn't mention this, but do you know that they actually... Uh, tied a rope to the high priest with, with bells on it. And you know why? So if he went into God's presence and he had not done as God had required, he would die 
and they would hear him stop moving, they could pull him out. Uh, and, and so in the Old Testament worship, God's presence was inaccessible uh, to, to, to the people. Look, uh, look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is standing. And then the fourth limitation of the uh, Old Covenant worship was sacrifices were totally inadequate to cleanse the worshiper. Uh, which is the focus of verses 9 and 10, especially verse 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, it just simply covered sin, made them ceremonially clean uh, outwardly, but it could not remove the stain of guilt and sin. And then from there, we move to the superiority of the New Testament worship, and in the last message, we covered the first three. So this is also review, also review, one, two, and three. So let's look at these very, very quickly. First, we come to Jesus in the heavenly tabernacle. Uh, that's the focus of verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So where the old covenant worship focused on an earthly tabernacle, the new covenant focuses on what? The heavenly tabernacle where Jesus is seated, and it's to Him that we come, as we've already talked about earlier in this study, to find what? Grace and mercy in our time of need. Second uh, thing that shows the superiority of the new covenant worship is we receive eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. Look at verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. Whose blood? Jesus' blood. Through Jesus' blood, He entered the holy place, notice, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And eternal means what? Forever. And that word redemption means what? You've been bought, and you've been bought with what price? The price of Christ's blood. Therefore, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, you're, you are what? You are not your own. You are not your own. You live, you exist to serve God's purposes, to submit to His authority. That's why Paul said also in Romans 12, we're to present our bodies what? A living sacrifice. Notice, a living, daily sacrifice which he says is your reasonable act of worship. We don't do it out of duty. We do it out of delight because of what Jesus accomplished for us. And then he goes on and says, Oh, God, don't let me be conformed to this world. Don't let me be squeezed into this world's uh, way of thinking, to the, in this world's conduct and character and attitudes. But let me be transformed through the renewal of my mind. That is a living sacrifice, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I might prove every day. What is that good and perfect will of God? Like Jim Knox. You know, the testimony about our lives would be, there's a person that walks with God, that pleases Him in all things. And then look at the third uh, thing that shows the super superiority of the new covenant worship. And this is where we ended la in the last message. Our conscience is cleansed from the defilement of sin and dead works. Verse 14, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, we talked about the fact that this, uh, these verses probably give the greatest example of the power of the blood of Christ because he gives an analogy. He contrasts Christ's blood with the blood of that red heifer. You know, these are in the earlier verses where he talks about the ashes of a red heifer making the Israelite clean, but not clean internally, clean externally, ceremonially, so that he could participate in worship, he could participate in the life of the uh, community of the people. Remember we talked about this, that, that uh, now we just don't have time to go into detail now, but we did talk about this two weeks ago, how there were a number of things that could happen to an Israelite that would make him unclean. And if he was declared unclean, he could not participate in worship. He could not participate in the life of the community until he became clean. So the old covenant made provision for this. The, the high priest would slay a red heifer, a sacrifice. He would sprinkle the blood of that red heifer in the tabernacle. And then he would take that, the body of the red heifer outside the camp. Not just outside the tabernacle, but outside the camp. Just like Jesus was what? Killed right outside the camp. And he would burn that red heifer where there would be nothing left but ashes. And then they had special barrels. And they'd put those ashes in these barrels. And so if you were an Israelite and you became unclean, you'd done something to become unclean, you simply had to go to the priest. Or you could actually go to another Israelite who, who was clean. And they would take you to one of those barrels. They'd take some of those ashes, sprinkle it, with, uh, mix it with water, and you would be sprinkled with it. And, when, and you'd go through this and, uh, a second time, and then at that point you were declared clean. And you could once again enter worship. You could once again enter the life of the, of the community. And then, and then the writer in Hebrew says, hey, if the ashes of red heifer could do that, how much more can the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse your conscience from sin and dead works? And notice... The analogy is between the ashes of the red heifer and the blood of Jesus. Why? Because we talked about ashes are, is, is, is what happens after a fire occurs, right? It's the memorial of the fire. You can't burn ashes because it's already been burned. And so what does the blood represent? It represents God's judgment falling on His Son, Jesus. Just like those ashes represented the memorial from the fire, His blood is the memorial that's left after God's judgment fell on His Son for your sin, for your guilt. And like the ashes of that red heifer made the Israelite clean to participate in worship, to participate in the life of the community, but only externally, the blood of Jesus cleans you what? Internally. From God's perspective, it removes the guilt. It has the power to cleanse your conscience. And notice, and this is so beautiful. He says, from sin and what? Dead works. And we talked about what dead works are. Dead works are those things that we try to do to find merit with God. You know, the, all the, you know with all the things, we make a list and say, you know, if I would just do this, if I would just do that, you know, if I would have devotions every day, if I would just love my wife a little better, you know, I, I could get really close to Jesus. So we make this list. The only problem is we never live up to our list. 
And so we sort of stay in this state of being condemned. And he says, the blood of Christ delivers you from that approach. You don't approach Christ now on the basis of your merits, on the basis of success. In fact, you, you approach him on the basis of one thing, Jesus' blood, his finished work. And so even if you've fallen into sin as a believer, even if you've known a terrible failure, you have access to God's presence. Now, yes, you have to be sincere, you have to be honest, you have to be transparent, you have to come confessing your sin, acknowledging your sin, but God receives you because Jesus judged that sin. And therefore, there's no condemnation for those who have believed in Christ Jesus. Amen? So we're delivered from this mentality that I have to gain God's approval. I'm, I'm set free from that. Just, just to love Him out of sheer delight. And then, uh, in about the next five minutes, look at the last three. We, we, these are new. Number one, we, we receive our eternal inheritance which required Christ's death. This is verses 15 and 17. We receive our eternal inheritance which required Christ's death. This verse is 15 through 17, but because of time, just look at verse 16. For where a covenant is, there must be of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, you might want to just circle that word covenant and out to the side. And I've mentioned this to, the, uh, this to you many, many times before as we've had the Lord's Supper. That word covenant is synonymous with last will and testament. That's how it's being used here. And it's saying just like when a person makes his last will and testament, it doesn't come into effect until what? After the death of that person. Once that person dies then the individuals can receive their inheritance, whatever's been left to them. So the point that he's making in these verses is that we have received an eternal inheritance, not on the basis, again, of our efforts or trying to gain God's merit, but just as a free gift from God to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, in a previous message, let me just remind you, we talked about there are four aspects to our inheritance. Four things that Jesus Christ gave us that are specifically mentioned in the new covenant. The one is that He now will provide the internal motivation and power to obey God. See, He will do what the old covenant failed, why it failed, because it could not provide internal motivation and power. But now Jesus says, I'm going to live in you. You have the privilege to abide in me as the branch abides in the vine. I will be that power at work in you, not only providing the motivation, but the ability to achieve my will. He says, I will put my what? Law into your minds, and I will write them on your hearts. The second promise in the uh, new covenant is it's based on a close relationship with God instead of one that is fearful and distant. He says, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Again, not on the virtue, not on the basis of your efforts, your good works, but what Jesus accomplished for you as an act of grace, as an act of mercy. And then the third part, he provides confidence and assurance instead of insecurity and uncertainty. He says, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. These are all in chapter 8. This is verse 11. And everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. 
And then the fourth wonderful promise in the New Covenant is it emphasizes forgiveness and mercy instead of failure and sin. Verse 12 of chapter 8 says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will, what? Remember their sins, what? No more. I'll remember their sins no more. Now, we talked about this. God's omniscient. It doesn't mean that He's not aware of the fact that we sin. It means because of what Jesus did, if you are a child of God, He will never let that sin come between you and Him in terms of breaking the relationship. Now, it can impact fellowship with Him. Just like with one of my kids, you know, nothing can ever alter the fact that I'm their daddy, that they're my child, but how they behave, how they're at, can affect our fellowship, our intimacy, and the same thing with God. By virtue of what Jesus accomplished for you, your relationship with God is secure. And you have now the opportunity to have fellowship with Him. Again, not on the basis of your efforts, but the finished work of Christ, as you are transparent, honest, and open about your sin. So that is the wonderful inheritance that we received that required Christ's death. It would never have been made effective without His death. And then the fifth wonderful uh, thing that shows us the superiority of the new covenant is we receive forgiveness, which required Christ's blood. And this has been the theme of this entire chapter. And verse 22, that second part, states it all. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we have received forgiveness, which required, again, Christ's blood. And we receive it now as a gift from God. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just have to reach out and take it by faith as you put your trust in Him. And then the sixth wonderful truth is we, re- we escape God's judgment, which required Christ becoming our substitute. We escape God's judgment. Look at verses 27, 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Folks, listen as I close this up. There are two two certainties for every person sitting here or standing here. You're going to die. And after death is going to come what? Judgment. Inescapable. Unless Jesus returns, you are going to die. And once you die, you are going to face God. You're going to face that judgment. Now, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus... When they face God, our glory is the fact that Jesus already took our punishment. He already took our judgment, and God will be able to receive us into eternal life. But for all of those who did not put their trust in Jesus, who rejected Him, then they will have to bear that judgment in an eternal hell, in damnation, in agony. But God loved the world, and He so loved the world that He what? He gave His only begotten Son. Why? That whosoever what? 
believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as we come to the close of this message, there could be some here, and God has convicted your heart, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never placed your faith and your confidence in Him. And this morning, God is extending that offer of forgiveness to you. He's inviting you to place your faith, your trust in Him, what He accomplished for you through His death as He died in your place for the penalty of your sin, as He shed His blood for your guilt. And He's saying, come, come, trust me. Invite me into your heart to forgive you of your sins, take control of your life. And I invite you to come and put your trust in Jesus. Now, I know most of us here are believers. What's the message here? You're forgiven. You're no longer under condemnation. You've been set free from those dead works, your futile efforts to receive God's approval. So stop working and just rest and believe. And don't come to Jesus out of a sense of duty, but out of delight for who He is and what He accomplished for you. And just live your life as this one act of worship to honor Him, to put His grace on display, because that's what, in reality, we all are, right? We're trophies of God's grace. He takes these depraved, doomed, condemned sinners, He saves us, and He raises us up as trophies of His grace. So that He gets what? All the glory. Not us, but He gets the glory. So there's no longer a need for any believer to fear God. You say, Andy, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did last week. Or a month or whatever it was. No, my point is, God knows. And if you're a believer, He already died for that. You need not fear Him. Yes, you need to reverence Him. Yes, you need to honor Him by getting honest with Him, by coming to Him to confess that sin, acknowledging and know the forgiveness that's been provided for you to be restored in your fellowship with God, to be restored in that intimacy. Father, thank You for this wonderful truth. Thank You for the wonderful power of the blood of Jesus Christ that we've sung about, that we've preached about. Father, thank you for this beautiful church family that I had the opportunity to express my appreciation to. Uh, Lord, continue to grow us, continue to bless us, continue to use us. Yes, Lord, there is good, there is bad, there is ugly. And thank you, Lord, despite all of that, you love us. You love us with a love that will never fail us. And you told us you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So, Lord, even when we look at our deficiencies, we choose not to stagger in unbelief. We give you glory, believing you are able to perform what you promised, that you would build your church, you would build us up as your people, you would make us more like Jesus, that we would honor you, which in Christ's name we do pray, amen.